Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. All right. Today we are joined with one of our IOP counselors, Dan. Hi. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm, I'm hanging in there. It's a good Friday. Yeah. And of course, I'm joined with my colleague, Kaylee. Hey, everyone. Dan, we wanted to have you on the podcast because I think a lot of times when people come into treatment, they think it's kind of like a quick 30-day fix. Um, and when I say treatment, I mean a residential stay. Um, they think it's like a Band-Aid you can put on and then rip off, and then all of a sudden after 30 days, you're good and ready to go. So um, I know, obviously, you're an IOP counselor. I'm wondering if you can kind of uh, talk about the importance of uh, treatment planning and continuing of care. Yeah, so um, I think a lot of kind of that stereotype comes about, like, when you're thinking of some of the movies and what they presented. So if you think about the movie 28 Days, well, it's talks about 28 days like that's how long it is and then mm -hmm. after that you're good and then the movie ends and everything's okay happy ending and really um when we're thinking of care for uh substance use disorders it is it honestly just starts at residential residential is more of what we consider stabilization so that's um, people coming off the streets or they've been heavy use and in detox and then they go to residential and essentially they're just kind of like getting all of that out of their system mm -hmm. um, and then get to a place where they can just function as a human being. If you think about stuff that happens in residential, um, oftentimes people are considered vulnerable, vulnerable adults during that time um, because they are at a place where they're basically being taken care of. After that, um, there tends to be a big disconnect as people go from essentially being taken care of like they're um, either a child again or someone who is a vulnerable adult, and they basically just get tossed back out into the world. Um, so the entire existence of IOP, so that's intensive outpatient treatment, is to sort of like, okay, now I'm in the real world. What do I actually do with this? Like, how do I actually be sober? How do I actually go to work, go to school, meet my family, and like go get through a week in my own apartment and remain sober. And that's really the purpose of what IOP is, is kind of like learning how to do that because it's actually a lot more complicated than you would think because at residential, you are essentially in your own little bubble. It has its own culture. It has its own like world in there. And then you get out of that and you go back into your world and your world usually had a lot of drinking or use in it. So now what does it look like? Um, so that's, that's kind of what continuing care looks like is how do you move from this area of, you know, being very safe to now I'm in the real world and I still want to be safe, but it looks different than what it was. So then I think obviously we mentioned, you know, the stereotype of 28 days, 30 days, um, and that looks different for every single person, depending on their insurance and what they have for coverage. Um, but I, I guess my question is what's the typical length of stay for someone at an IOP level? So at IOP level, um, it kind of depends on the program. I'd say anywhere between five and seven months. Okay. Um, a lot of that, as you kind of mentioned, is dependent on insurance, um, which is a constant, <laughs> it's a constant <laughs> battle over here for IOP counselors and I guess for just people in general. Um, 
but that's that's about the amount of time that's usually given by insurance. Um, honestly, the amount of time that someone should probably be in outpatient level of care or intensive outpatient level of care is probably closer to a year. Um, but we kind of have to work with the system that we have. Um, and that is allotted for about six months on average. Um, so yeah. So then altogether with residential treatment, and there's so many levels of treatment, residential, medium intensity, partial hospitalization, outpatients, so you can go through all these levels of treatment. What would you recommend the whole gambit, you know, from residential to whatever your continuing care plan is? How long does that look like? Like how many days, years? Ideally, like a year <laughs> minimum. Um, so I, I, I've had this conversation with clients before about how like it's we're kind of working as best as we can within a broken system. Um, and really, if we were had proper like health care, um, we would be able to fund for a full year. Um, and, you know, there wouldn't be as much punishment around not doing a full year um, or not having a full amount of time. But really, from like entering residential to um, basically doing your own sort of maintenance, I would say it's, it's about a year really before it really kind of can set in. Um, and I mean, that's not, a, that's not a set number. It's different for each people, for each person, I should say. But, um, but yeah, I, I would say IOP goes about six months, seven months because of insurance. Um, it should continue beyond that. In an ideal world, it would. Uh, because really before about that year mark, people are still pretty vulnerable and they're still working out like, how do I actually go through this world? Because if you think about it, even like what happens within a year, you know, you've got all these holidays, you have the changing of seasons, you have um, all these various things that can happen to you um, that if you don't have support during that time, you might not know what it looks like. Mm -hmm. So it's important to at least like see like what does a year of sobriety look like um and iop is would ideally be able to help with that so but my recommendation is a year probably not going to get that which is too bad yeah okay so when you leave a residential treatment facility you know you leave like you said that little bubble and then you go back into your life um and you know you have work you have friends family you're all trying to get back to these these other things that you're doing, how do you really, you know, establish that treatment is a priority and that should come before, you know, work or, you know, some people have a really intensive job. So how do you put treatment first before, um, you know, all the other things that you have going on before you went into residential? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Um, that's when I end up bumping heads with clients a lot about. Um, and the sad reality of it is, you still need to pay rent sometimes. I would say that, so there's kind of this idea that sobriety comes first, right? Mm -hmm. Treatment comes first in those situations, but also a more realistic <laughs> idea of this is like, we need to survive. Um, sobriety should be a part of that. Like being able to be in treatment should be a part of that. You should be able to have that help you survive. Um, but there's also sometimes like, I need to pay rent or, I don't have the proper housing. Like I can't go to IOP because I'm homeless. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's there's kind of this priority of, um, you know, making sure that your, your basic needs are met first and then after that comes treatment. Um, unfortunately, what I see are people kind of getting that confused with, I need to work myself to the bone to save money 
even if they have like some backup plan, if they have something that's able to help them during the time when they need it. And sometimes people go back to a job because that is what makes them comfortable. That is what um, works better. And they don't really need that for to, or uh, they don't really need that in order to remain sober. It ends up being kind of crutch, a uh, crutch. Um, and so people will go back to jobs that they hate. They'll go back to mm-hmm. jobs that they feel um, aren't satisfying and that they don't really need because they have ways of getting funding other ways. Um, and then they end up right back in the same situation because they might put their treatment below that. They might say, I can't go to IOP treatment because I need to go to work. And then two months later, they're back in residential treatment um, because they had a relapse, because they overworked themselves and because they didn't know what to do on the outside. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've seen that happen too. Um, ideally, like treatment would be number one priority, but there has to be a realistic look at it too. Um, and I think that, you know, as long as those basic needs are getting met, um, treatment should be a pretty high priority um, so that people are able to, you know, continue to get their needs met and do it in a way that's healthy for them. What would you tell the person who's leaving a residential site who says, nope, I'm good, um, I did it, um, I don't need IOP, I'm good to go? See you in two months? I don't know. <laughs> not, I mean, not that callously. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it can be done. Uh-huh. Uh, if you were at a level that you ended up in residential care, you probably need something beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't have like a good plan leaving, you're probably going to end up relapsing. And I don't, I don't mean that to be like everyone is going to relapse if right. they don't have a plan afterwards. But the st- statistics are against you, like heavily against you. Mm-hmm. Try to do that. We all want to be the exception, but the majority of us are the rule. And you know, if you try to try to go out there without any plan in place, like not even like support networks, so AA, NA, Dharma Recovery, Smart Recovery, none of that, you're probably not going to succeed. Um, and, you know, that's just, that's just the, that's just the stats on it. Like, I don't mm-hmm. really have any other way to put that. Um, so it's, I mean, you know, I, I hope the best for them, but I'm not surprised if they come back through those doors in a couple months. No. So. All right. So we've been to residential treatment. We went to, you know, uh, IOP, got sober housing. We've been in IOP for six months. What's the next step after your discharge from your outpatient program? What does that look like life on your own? Um, so at this point, I, this is the point that I find to be very crucial for people's kind of um, self-accountability. And hopefully during the time that they're in IOP treatment, they've begun to learn how to hold themselves accountable. Because at that point, you are basically like, you are setting up what your recovery looks like, that six month period. Well, I guess it's a total, it's the rest of your life, ideally period, but that six months after um, IOP and then before that year when things kind of get easier. there's a lot of how do I know that I'm doing things right? How do I have the right things in place? And oftentimes what those look like, I'm saying oftentimes, um, that is attending meetings. Um, so those four meetings I talked about, therapy, huge thing, uh, making sure that you have medications that like are helping out with the mental health stuff, 
because I don't know if you've talked about it on podcasts before, but mental health and substance use are like hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so making sure you're getting all that addressed um, and making sure that that's still happening and no one's telling you to do it at this point. Like you're not having that as a requirement of your treatment plan, but do you want to continue this? Then you should probably have a plan to make sure that you have something there to support you. Um, I think that's probably the best advice I give is find a way to fill in those gaps that leaving treatment provides for you. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my thoughts on that. In what ways, like, what are some examples that you've found with your clients of how they've been able to fill that time? Um, so I've, I've had a couple of really good ideas that clients have made when they've, when they're finishing up, they have to have a, a plan for me anyway of like what they're going to do. Um, I've had people be like, I'm going to go back to school. So they're adding in that structure of school. Um, that's when people might go back to work more heavily. Um, there's always kind of a caveat of like, how am I going to have that? sober contact so are you going to keep going to meetings are you going to continue to talk to the people that support you when you're sober um that can be it i've also had people who say that the um when they're done with treatment the three hours or six hours that they did during the week because near the end it starts tapering off um they're going to schedule that time for self-care and i think that is a really big thing too of really taking the time to like take care of yourself um, can really help you check in and be like, okay, so how's my separate, how's my sobriety doing right now? How, how am I holding together? Do I need more stuff to fill that time? Do I need to get a look at my mental health? How am I doing? So I, I've seen a lot of different ways that people have done it. I tend to work. There's, there's kind of some blanket ones that we recommend. So continue to go to meetings. If you have a therapist, continue to go to a therapist. Um, if you don't have a therapist, get a therapist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I preach that one a lot. Um, but, you know, it, it's kind of individualized to, like, what what is important for that person. Um, but there are definitely some things, like, that are pretty across the board important, too. So making sure you have um, that peer recovery support and mental health care that you need. Mm-hmm. So would you agree or disagree with this statement? What all patient really does for you is teaches you how to break the patterns that you were previously in and teaches you how to implement new patterns, implement a new lifestyle, or what does really IOP offer? I, th- I would agree with that. Um, I think a big thing that IOP helps people with um, is coming across those situations that they've been in before and dealing with them in a different way. Uh, We tend to get stuck in ruts or we tend to respond to things the same way over and over again, because that's what our life is like. Um, But what IOP really does is tries to challenge you on those. Like, is that really healthy? Is that really the right way to do it? Is that possibly the right way to do it, but via the wrong, for the wrong reasons, you know? Um, so it kind of like things, things I've seen are, um, sometimes people just dealing with family members. Like, how do I deal with my family member in a way that is more healthy? Um, how do I make sure that my mom hears me when I say that, um, I am struggling with my addiction and how do I make sure that she hears that for what it is instead of immediately shaming me? Mm -hmm. Um, and 
a big thing that IOP provides is a place for you to talk to people who are going through the exact same stuff um, and say to them, like, this is what I'm trying. It's not working. Do you have anything to help me out? Um, and then hearing feedback from their peers, um, learning through like the assignments that are given about like, how can I approach this differently? Um, it's really about kind of just like changing how you uh, respond in a normal life in such a way that you can stay sober while doing so. You had mentioned the importance of uh, peer support and kind of talking about things with people who are going through something similar to you. Um, how important do you think sober housing is? Oh gosh. Um, I think especially for people who are just coming out of residential, sober housing is a really good idea. Sometimes at outpatient, we get people who are coming from the outside. Mm -hmm. So who already have apartments, who already have a place they're living. Um, and one challenge I see sometimes with those individuals is how do I make where you're living a sober space? Um, I don't have to worry about that so much when clients are already in sober housing because uh, there's a lot of, I mean, like that's in the name, like it's baked into that. You know, there's going to be people who are usually like making sure that you're doing the stuff you need to do to um, keep a schedule and like they'll give you drug tests in order to make sure that you're actually not using. And a lot of people see that as kind of an infringement on their rights, but then I see other people see that as like, a, I don't trust myself right now and I really need someone else to help me with that, um, which I think is takes a lot of courage to say and is probably actually something I'd hear, I'd rather hear than someone be like, no, I've got this, I'm fine, um, and then not do anything in their environment to, to help it out. Um, you know, it's it's better to be able to admit, like, I, I don't trust myself right now, and I'd rather put in someone else's hands, like the sober house, mm -hmm. to make sure that I can do this right. So, yeah. Really just that accountability piece is what sober housing... Big, big time. I mean, that's a lot of what IOP is about generally, is learning accountability for yourself and, like, you know, other people's, like, everything else that's happening in your life, you know? Because mm -hmm. um, that... That's that's really what it is. I mean, when you're in residential, you don't have to worry about that accountability so much. You're basically in being taken care of. You know, at IOP, like you're learning to function in the greater world, and a big part of that is making sure that you are willing to do that and hold yourself accountable for it. Well, and how scary too to first come to terms with yourself of knowing, like, okay, I actually do need twenty-four hour assistance. And then, you know, we've talked about on this podcast already a couple of times of like 30 days really isn't that long. And then like a lot of times people think leaving like a 30 day stay is like this really beautiful thing. And it's actually really, really terrifying because of all the things we've talked about of like, now I don't have this accountability. I don't have my peer support. I, you know, finances aren't necessarily in place. Um, so I think all of that lends itself into the importance of, you know, the work you do and some of the, the work that all outpatient sites do. Yeah. Um, have you guys ever really talked about like what the pink cloud is? Go for like, it. Uh, no, not at all. Concept. So it's that idea of like at residential, you are immersed in recovery. Like it is its own world. Um, and so essentially you are kind of like on this pink cloud, like this really like fluffy, happy sort of feeling of being like, oh, I've got this recovery is great. I'm doing fantastic. Well, where you learned that was at a place where everything was kind of being taken care of for you and you are immersed in that. And then 
as people leave residential, they begin to recognize that, you know, that's not what the world is. You're going to deal with beer ads. You're going to deal with walking past a liquor store. Mm -hmm. Um, You're going to deal with seeing people on the street that you used to buy drugs from. And that pink cloud sort of like starts to disappear and people recognize that the world is what it is. And that, um, that can be really daunting for people sometimes. Sometimes that, just that whiplash can be enough for someone to want to use again, mm-hmm. to get back to that safe place that was residential, or just to be able to escape like what they're seeing. Um, but I've, I've also seen people um, who have that recognition of that pink cloud come in and sort of like be like, all right, well, I want my life to be safe and happy again. How do I make that for myself? How do I make my own cloud really? Um, mm-hmm. It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be better. Um, how do I make myself safe? Um, I don't know if that asked your question at all. I just completely went off on it. No, yeah. you totally did. That... <laughs> I have a very distracted brain. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just what it is. Uh-huh. No, you totally answered that. Totally yeah. fit in. Dan, you've you've worked in this field now for a little while. So you've worked at a couple different um, treatment centers. How does working at an LGBTQ one um, compare, and what do our clients face that's different than the general population? Um, so I worked at um, a place that uh, focused really heavily on trauma in the past. Um, I worked there as a tech, so someone who in the residential building or facility uh, essentially um, takes care of some of the everyday stuff. So like I do laundry and dishes and bring the clients places and like pass out meds and stuff like that. I mean, pass out meds to the clients that I had them. I wasn't just like dealing with that. <laughs> um, but <laughs> so I did that for a while and then I got my license, um, as an LADC. Um, during that time I had an internship over here at the outpatient site actually. Then <laughs> I went back to that old job and was in LADC for about four months. And then I was like, I need to come back to Pride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I had the opportunity offered to me to come back here. And it, nothing against that place, really. But there is just such a important connection that can be made when you're working with people that are of the same community as you. Mm-hmm. So I myself am a gay man. So like being able to work with um, like a community where that's that's just kind of known. Yep. Like people, like that's the, I don't want to say assumption, but that's like the basis of part of Pride, right? Yep. It's the LGBTQ side of it. And that means that I don't have to like go through explaining things to my clients. Clients don't have to go through explaining things to me, like terms that are within the queer community. You know, it's just sort of like if I'm part of it and know enough about it, then I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's this big step of like, that is also a step of safety because then I don't feel like I'm constantly having to explain myself to people because I had to do that in the past. I've had to do that as um, a counselor, as a tech, um, and it gets really tiring. Uh, that's not what I'm there for, honestly. Um, one thing that I did appreciate about those places is that sometimes I felt as an advocate for our community, being able to get people to talk about stuff that they wouldn't normally talk about with um possibly other uh, like cis hat identifying people. Yep. Um, they would be able to get on a deeper level and really be able to approach on that stuff, um, which is cool. It's a good opportunity for them, but that's not 
what I would want to do there. I want to be teaching them about recovery, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and here it's like, I don't have to explain any of that. I can just talk about recovery and, you know, occasionally like apply it to like, how does that make sense in the community? Because it is, I mean, recovery is huge in the LGBTQ community. Use is huge in the LGBTQ community. So recovery has to be huge too. Right. Um, And, you know, it's its own beast. And clients that are LGBTQ have had, for a lot of their life, had to go around um, hiding parts of themselves. And if they did expose them par- those parts of themselves, they'd have to have a big explanation and possible rejection. And that's hard. Um, so one thing that I think Pride really offers is a place where you don't have to worry about that. Because mm-hmm. right. I understand it completely. Like I've been through that. Um, being able to not feel rejected just on the basis of something that isn't even related to what you're doing. You know, you're coming for recovery and you're getting rejected because of your sexuality. Well, that's no fair. Right. That's not something that is helpful. So I think it's it's good to have that inclusiveness um, and just co- sort of that representation that Pride provides. So. And just to further prove your point, you said the word cishet. What do you explain to that? What that means to people who are listening that are not in the queer community? Oh my gosh, you're right. I so just to prove my point, I am so uh, I'm used to talking about that. So cishet stands for cisgender heterosexual. Cisgender means that you are someone who identif- your gender identification is the same as your sexual. What, what you were assigned for a gender because of your um, sexual genitalia, basically. Um, and then heterosexual is some... Do I really have to explain that one? <laughs> no, I think we all got it. It's it's a Friday afternoon. We're tired. Yeah. I was like, wait a second. Uh-huh. So, so that's what I mean by cisgender. Uh, cishet means cisgender heterosexual. So if we're breaking it down to the nitty-gritty, that is the average person presented in the media. No. So like guys who like girls that are I don't know identify as guys guys. (laughs) all right well Dan thank you so much for uh, joining us today we really appreciate it yeah no problem I see you guys every Friday (laughs) (laughs) we'll see you next Friday bye thanks Dan Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. For more information about our services, please call 952-522-5683, visit pride-institute.com, or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. You can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.